Go ahead, take your Bible and turn to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a black hardbound Bible in front of you somewhere close by. We'll be in Exodus 19. Um, and we'll begin reading. We'll read actually the whole chapter. And then, and then we'll pray and then think about what this chapter is meant to teach us. Exodus 19, beginning in verse 1, this is what the Spirit says to us. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to shall speak to you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, "All that the Lord has spoken, we will do." And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, "Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever." When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all round, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a, a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and answered him, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. 
And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up bringing Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Let's pray together. Oh God, you are robed in majesty. You are crowned with strength and glory. You are our holy king. And we pause to thank you that in your kindness you condescend to speak to us, to rescue us, that we might know you. We pray, Lord, this morning as we look at these words from your word, that we will hear them as your word, that by your spirit you will open our ears and our hearts and our minds to receive this word as your word, to believe it, to respond in faith. We cannot do this on our own. You must help us, Lord. Help me that I might speak, for I am your servant. These are your people. This is your word. And we ask all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Who is God? What is God like? What does God do? What does God require of us? These are fundamental questions. They are important questions, and the way we answer those kinds of questions determine how we see the world, how we live our lives, how we make decisions. And the thing is, is that humans tend to answer these questions by first looking to themselves. What, what kind of God would I prefer? How, how do I want God to relate to me? What do I want God to be like? Our imagination drives the answer. Our desires drive the answer. I mean, imagine I, if I imagine uh, that, that He's a God who never judges anyone for anything, well, now that's a God I can get behind. If I imagine He's a God who's all about love, but not only that, He lets me define what love is and what love does, well, then all the better. If I imagine that God affirms all of my decisions, my morals, my ethics, my choices, my life, He just gives me a nice wink and a pat on the back, no matter what I choose then I'll think he's great, right? I mean, I'll even go to a church. I'll even go to church for that God. If I imagine that God's job is to make life great, 
to make me happy, to make my business successful, to protect me from fatal or crippling disease, to give me an idyllic family life, then when that kind of thing falls apart, as it most certainly will, well, I'll just leave God behind because, after all, He's not doing His job. But what if you're wrong? What if you're wrong about God? What if He's not how you think He is? What if God's not who you conceive Him to be? What if God's work in this world is different than you imagine? You see, the Bible teaches us that God actually doesn't leave Himself to our imagination. He's revealed Himself to us so that we might know Him. And one of the places we get a very clear picture of who God is is in Exodus 19. Israel is no longer in Egypt. They have crossed the Red Sea. They've done some wandering in the wilderness, and now they have arrived in the wilderness of Sinai, at the mountain itself. Here they will receive the law. Here they'll receive instructions about the tabernacle and worship. Here they will stay until about Numbers chapter 10. They're going to be here a while. But before all of that begins to unfold, Exodus 19 focuses on the one who gives the law, the one who gives the instruction. It shows us God, and it teaches us that the God who rescues His people requires obedience and deserves reverence. The God who rescues His people requires obedience and deserves reverence. Well, let's think about that first by thinking of the fact that God rescues His people. These people get here. They set up camp. They're doing what you can hear the pots and pans banging around or whatever it is that they're doing. And then the first word that comes to them through Moses from God is a reminder. Look at verse 3. The Lord called Moses out of the, out of the mountain, from, uh, from out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, it's only been a couple of months here. Why is it that they need to be reminded? In fact, if you just keep reading the Old Testament, over and over and over and over again, these people are reminded, you were slaves in Egypt, and I brought you out. In fact, many times just in the rest of the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, God identifies Himself as the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. It's on His business card. That's what He does. He's the Lord your God who brought you… If you don't know what a business card, it's all right. Uh, but He's the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. That is who He is. That is what He has done. Why would He need to remind them here? Why would He need to remind them over and over again? Well, quite simply, if they're not reminded, they'll forget. And they can never forget. They can never forget 
that they were slaves, oppressed, and hopeless. They can never forget that God heard their cry and came to their aid and rescued them. Really, friends, this is why we preach the gospel over and over and over again. It's why we come to the Lord's table to take bread and cup, because we are prone to spiritual amnesia. We are prone to forget what God has done for us in Christ. We are prone to forget our hopelessness, to forget the oppressive slavery of sin and its consequences. You know what we're prone to think? We're good. I mean, look where we are on a Sunday morning. We're good. We've got this. We're like a child who thinks that they can ride their bike on their own, forgetting that dad put them on the seat and dad's running alongside them holding the seat as they go. We forget that if he let go at all, we'd just be doomed. And so we need to be reminded. Friends, we need to hear the gospel. The gospel is not for people who, just for people who don't know Jesus, to tell them this is your only hope before God. The, the gospel is for people who do know Jesus to be reminded Jesus is your only hope before God. That's why we have to have the bread. We have to have the cup because we'll forget. I'm so thankful we take communion every month. I remember being uh, temporarily leading worship at a church, and the pastor says to me, you know, I can't remember the last time we took communion. Maybe we ought to do that soon. He ironically forgot the very thing that's supposed to cause us to remember. (laughs) But that's why we need it. That's why constantly, I mean, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, I would remind you of the gospel I preach to you. Peter says, I never, I'm never going to get red-faced and embarrassed about reminding you because you need to be reminded. And so God reminds them, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. It was like an eagle. I got you out. I swooped underneath you. I carried you along because you can't make it yourself. And the goal there at the end of verse 4, look what he did. It's interesting, he doesn't mention the promised land. He says, I brought you to myself. Are there any sweeter words to hear from the lips of God than you are mine and I am yours? And he gives them a picture of what that means. He says in verse 5, they're a treasured possession. I mean, in a kingdom, everything in the end belongs to the king, but these, but he has particular prizes that are his. I mean, just think about your own house, right? If you own your house, everything that's in it is yours. You know, the spoons and the Kleenex and the TVs and the light switches and the trash cans, they're all yours. But as you think about all of the things in your house, aren't there particular things that are more precious to you? I'm not talking about people just now. I'm just talking about things that are in your house. Maybe photo albums. Maybe grandma's jewelry. Maybe some piece of woodwork your grandfather made. 
Maybe dad's watch. Maybe mom's cookbook with her handwriting in it. They're treasured possessions. In the end of verse 5, the Lord says, The earth is mine. The, the earth is mine. All of the peoples of the earth are His. It's not that there are some peoples who belong to God and other peoples who don't. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, Psalm 24. He said, all, the, all of the earth is mine, but, but out of all of those peoples, His rescued people, they're His treasured possession. He says, they're a kingdom of priests. Priests have access to God. Priests represent God to others. And so God looks at His people and said, all of you, as a nation, you are a kingdom of priests. You have access to me through worship. You have access to me through prayer. And you are to represent me before the nations. You're really to be a light to the nations. You're supposed to show them what it means to be my people. Glorify me among the nations. That's why that... Uh, uh, um, uh, Psalm 29 is quoted in, in Psalm 95. And, and, and before that comes, it says, Say among the nations the Lord reigns. Why say among the nations? So they will hear of the salvation of the Lord that goes to the ends of the earth, Isaiah 48 or 49. And they're a holy nation. This goes right along with being a kingdom of priests. Israel is to be set apart from the world, from the ways of the world, from the ideas of the world, from the ethics of the world, from the morals of the world, and they are to be set apart to God, to His Word, to His purposes. They're a holy nation. God rescues His people, Israel, and they are His treasured possession. They're His kingdom of priests. They're His holy nation. He uniquely relates to them and cares for them and has purpose for them. And if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, God uses this same language about you, about us. In 1 Peter chapter 2, listen to this language. See if it just rings a bell now that you've got Exodus 19 in your mind. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. How great is that? There are no sweeter words to hear from the lips of God than you are mine and I am yours. Everything else flows out of that. Now, let's not be confused. This privileged place with God doesn't make much of us. It makes much of God. He's the rescuer. We're the ones who need to be rescued. Being God's treasured possession doesn't mean that we're great. It means that He's great. It's not meant to give us better self-esteem. It's actually meant for us to better give God esteem. So that Deuteronomy chapter 7, as, as Moses is recalling this, he says, The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest among all peoples. 
but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. God rescues his people, you see, not because they're lovable, but because he's loving. You see the difference? One pats me on the back, and one sends me to my knees. And when you read the thrust of the whole Bible, the Bible's actually not there to pat me on the back. It's there to send me to my knees. It doesn't show me God, so I feel good about me. It shows me God, so I'll think less of me and more of Him. God rescues His people. Secondly, God requires obedience. Look at verse 5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession. You see, to be God's people, to be in relationship with Him, means a change in the way that we live. Okay? There's no getting around that. Just think about marriage. Here's a young man and a young woman. They come into this wonderful relationship, a covenant relationship. But in doing so, in taking those vows, they are vowing to change something. No longer is life just about me. In fact, one comes to commit to love and honor and cherish and care for this person above all others in all of life no matter what, right? Sickness and health, richer or poorer, better or worse, till death do you part. And we're all, if you got married young, we're all idiots when we make that commitment, aren't we? We are totally ignorant. We are clueless as to what that means. I guarantee you that our dear sister Joy did not know what it would mean when she stood before the Lord in 2002 and made that commitment. We make the commitment, and then actually through all of life, we learn what it means. We learn what it means when better comes along and when worse comes along, when sickness comes along and when health comes along. You don't know everything that means, but you know everything changes here. And in, in, in a sense, boundaries are put into place, aren't they? Boundaries are drawn. When you get mar married, you may not have known this, but a boundary was drawn. You committed to not give your heart to any other. You committed to stay within the bounds of that marriage. And when God rescues a person and brings them into relationship with Himself, He calls us to live within the boundaries of that marriage, That's what he, that relationship. That's what He's saying to these people. Obey my voice. Keep the covenant. Stay in the boundaries. Now, please be clear. It's not obedience that brought them into the relationship. Obedience is the way they live in relationship with God. Now, some, because, you know, some people think in the Old Testament, obedience is the way in with God, and in the New Testament, grace is the way in with God. But that's actually very wrong. 
That's not the case at all. They weren't sitting in slavery, and God sent Moses and sent him to him and said, here's what I want you to tell my people. If they'll just obey enough, I'll rescue them. That didn't happen, did it? If you're not sure this afternoon, just go back to Exodus 1 and start reading. No, it's all of grace. We're brought to God by His grace. But in both the New Testament and the Old Testament, life in relationship with God is marked by obedience. And we as Christians actually kind of know this instinctively, don't we? When we sin or when there's some pattern of sinful thought or word or deed, we might say something like, I'm not right with God. Now, what we mean by that is not, I'm no longer a Christian. What we mean by that is, I'm not staying in the boundaries. I'm, I'm walking in disobedience, and that's just not right. That's not what it means to live in relationship with God. I need to make it right. You see, God requires obedience, plain and simple. Now, if you are tempted to raise your hand and claim, well, um, I have faith, that's wonderful. It's wonderful. And we're saved by God's grace through faith. And as you're raising your hand, the Apostle James just taps you on the shoulder, doesn't he? And he just says, um, faith by itself, if it does not have works is dead. And so the people hear this call to obedience and they're eager to obey. I mean, they're, eager, they're like revved up. They're at the foot of the mountain. God's saying obey. I'm all over it. Look at verse 8. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. The problem is, no, they won't. That's why the sacrificial system is instituted. Sin offerings exist because obedience doesn't. In fact, later in the New Testament, it's interesting, later in the New Testament, God calls their disobedience, their idolatry, He calls it adultery. Here they are on their wedding day, standing at the altar with God, saying, I do. And in just a few short days, they're going to run into the arms of an idol. But if you obey, but, but if you keep my covenant, they have no idea how unable they are to actually keep the covenant, to obey God's voice. It's a bit like uh, Peter in Matthew 26, isn't it, when he tells Jesus, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Uh, it can happen to teenagers when they're coming home from youth camp. And they think, I will never go down that path again. I am done with that path. Well, it is exactly one week since youth camp ended. And I'm wondering, how's it going? It happens with people who are in life-dominating patterned sin where over and over again they confess again and they confess again and they confess again and they say, I'm never going back that way again. I'm never going to do that again. I'm never going to do that again. I'm never going to do that again. Friends, our enthusiasm to obey is not actually enough to obey. 
We need help. And the good news is that God doesn't just give us support to obey. He gave us a substitute. He provides one who obeyed everything in our place. He provides Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Redeemer. He obeyed at every point, in word and in thought and in deed. And then He died to bear the punishment for our disobedience so that for the believer in Jesus, we don't necessarily say, "If, if I will indeed obey God's voice and keep His commandment. What do we say? Since Jesus has obeyed God's voice and kept His covenant, I am God's treasured possession. That's grace, friend. That's justification. That's the salvation God has offered in Christ. And if that is true of you, we don't just say, well, then it doesn't really matter if I obey, right? Because Jesus obeyed for me. Well, Paul doesn't seem to think so. Just go to Romans 6. He says, should I sin all the more so that grace may abound? By no means. God forbid it. No, actually, if Jesus has fulfilled everything for me, He has died for me, He also gives me His Spirit. You know what His Spirit is? It's a spirit of holiness. It's a spirit of obedience. And He calls me to follow Him. Follow Him. And if the Spirit of Jesus Christ lives in you, you can, by His Spirit, with His help, obey. You will never do it perfectly. But you can progressively grow in obeying Him and can being conformed to the image of His Son through all of life, as it were, in sickness and in health. Whether you're richer or poorer, whether things are better or whether they're worse till death not to part but to be with him forever God requires obedience friends and then the third thing to see here is that God deserves reverence God deserves reverence from verse 10 on we see that That the God who rescues these people not only requires obedience, He deserves reverence. You can't casually approach Him. I don't know if you recognize that as we were just reading the text. You can't waltz up the mountain without a thought or without preparation or without the recognition of who God is. This is the God announced by trumpet. The trumpet announces the arrival of the king. The trumpet announces the one who will conquer. The trumpet announces the one who will rule and who will reign. It's mentioned in verse 13. It sounds in verse 16. And the sound of it grows louder and louder as God comes nearer in verse 19. Is it any wonder then when we get to the New Testament... What is it that will mark the coming of the king to reign forever? One day the trumpet will sound for his coming. One day the skies with his glory will shine. Wonderful day, my beloved. Jesus, my Savior, is mine. This is the God announced by trumpet. When was the last time you walked into a room and you were announced by anything? 
This is also the God in the fire. This is the God in the fire. The fire of His holiness, like the burning bush where God meets Moses. Do you remember what He says from the fire? He says, do not come near. Take off your sandals, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Do not make light of His holiness. Do not think you can just stroll on up to the Sovereign One. Look at verse 12. You shall set limits before the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. And then again in verse 21, go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to look and many of them perish. And then Moses basically says, uh, God, uh, question, you already said that? That's, what, that's my uh, Toby paraphrase of verse 23. You already said that? God blows right past it and in verse 24, you know what he does? He says it again. Do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest He break out against them. Why all of the repetition? Because it's that important. God is holy, holy, holy. Do not come up, do not come up, do not come up. Can you imagine how watchful parents were at that moment? Where, where is Bobby? Somebody find him. They didn't have helicopter parenting in that day, so they didn't have trackers on all their children. You traveled in a caravan, your child may be with this group, that group, where as long as they're in the caravan, they're good. But here, we're at the foot of the mountain, and anyone who crosses that line dies. Where is Bobby? Shepherds watching their sheep, their beasts, making sure they don't wander too far from the fold. Why? Because this is the God in the fire. This is also the God in the cloud. The God in the cloud. It's quite something, isn't it, for those of you who like to go to the lake or to the beach to actually watch a storm approach, to see the dark clouds pile up and then seem to expand across the entire sky and lightning flashes and thunder rumbles so fiercely that you can feel it in your chest and you know it's coming, and you know it's ominous, and everyone knows to take cover? Well, when it says that God will descend in a thick cloud, what it means literally is He's coming in a cloud of clouds. The cloud of all clouds is coming and descending. So that in verse 16, on the morning of the third day, There were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. The God announced by trumpet, the God in the fire, the God in the cloud, this is how you respond to Him. You tremble. In fact, the whole place trembles. Look at the end of verse 18. The smoke of this fire went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. So don't just think you can come. These people have to be consecrated, verse 10. The mountain even has to be consecrated in verse 23. 
They have to be set apart for this moment. The people need to wash their clothes, the symbol of their consecration. They need to be ready on the third day. They don't even need to interact with one another as husband and wife in normal ways, according to verse 15. Why? Because this is no ordinary encounter. This is no ordinary moment. This is no ordinary God. Do not come in just thinking about and talking about the ordinary affairs of life. Come with one thing in mind. To hear the trumpet, feel the fire, see the cloud, and meet with God. Now, friends, we live in a day of great casualization. And in that kind of day, when everything trends toward the casual. This kind of sobriety and seriousness and reverence can easily be lost. I'm not referring to a particular form of worship. I'm not even referring to a particular form of dress. I just mean the posture of our hearts, the focus of our minds as we gather for worship. I wonder when we come together, do we take seriously that we are meeting with this God? Or do we just wander in casually in our minds at whatever time we happen to wander in without fully thinking about what we're doing here and maybe even already thinking about what we'll do after? Now, of course, within the family of God, we chat, we love each other, we encourage, we laugh, we cry, we hug, we do all of that. But at some point, friends, when we gather together on the Lord's day, in our hearts it needs to become the Lord's day. It need, our hearts need to turn from the horizontal to the vertical. We are singing before Him. We are praying to Him. He is the God who has spoken in His Word. His voice thunders in Lebanon. His voice thunders in my heart. This is the one to whom I look, God says. The one who is contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Do we tremble at his word? Israel actually gets it if you just glance into chapter 20 at verse 18. Moses writes, now, now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off. We already knew that. But then verse 19, and they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us, lest we die. They know they can't approach. Moses is going to have to go for them. 
There's a hard line that's been drawn. Holiness, the holiness of God, God Himself dwells on that mountain. We are at the foot of that mountain. It is a line we can't cross. The only way we're going to get anything from that side of the line is if God says a mediator can go for us. We got to have somebody. And that somebody in this case is Moses. Friends, that line between a holy God and sinful human beings remained for a long time. It was actually first drawn just outside the garden. The Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve were cast out after they sinned, the line was drawn, and the angel guarded it, and they couldn't go back in. And for years and years, the line hung as a curtain between the holy place and the most holy place. Not just anybody can go in there, only the high priest, and only once a year. And it hung in the tabernacle. And it hung in the temple, and it was there year after year after year until a mediator came who wouldn't just go in for us, but who could take it down. And that mediator is Jesus. You see, in Matthew 27, when Jesus dies, the curtain is torn from top to bottom. Jesus has given us access we never would have gotten otherwise. Jesus opened the door that was locked by our own sin. Jesus is the door. And all of those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, who trust God alone, Jesus alone to save them, you have that access to God. You have this incredible relationship with Him where He says of you, you are my people, and we can say of Him, He is our God. The question is, are you trusting in Jesus? Are you trusting in Him alone to save you? Faith in God's mediator is the only safe path in. In C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Four children stumble upon an enchanted world, a world of magic and of talking animals. And as the story goes, Mr. Beaver tells them about Aslan. And they're surprised to learn that Aslan is a lion, the lion the great lion. And one of the children who is not expecting this at all and is not looking forward to the possibility of encountering a lion says, well, well is he quite safe? And Mr. Beaver replies, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. That is the God of Exodus 19. He isn't safe. He's the God announced by trumpet. He's the God in the fire. He's the God in the cloud. He's the God you don't dare come near. Of course He isn't safe, but He's good. 
Look what He's done to rescue us. Look how He's rescued us in Jesus. Look how He's brought us out of slavery to sin and brought us to Himself and whispers in our ears, you're mine and I'm yours. This God deserves obedience. This God deserves absolute allegiance. This God deserves reverence. This God deserves our life, our soul, and our all. Of course, He isn't safe, but He's good. Let's pray. Father, we tremble as we think about who you are, as we think about your power and your holiness, your majesty, the fact that you dwell in unapproachable light. We are in awe of who you are. And we are thankful that the unapproachable light has approached us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you will stir in us with this fresh vision of who you are, stir in us a commitment to obedience that we know cannot be carried out apart from your Spirit. Stir up in us reverence for you, not a fear that runs and hides, but a, but a fear that falls to its knees and says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Lord, you deserve our lives, our souls, everything that we have because you are not safe and because you are good. How we praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.